you, Penny. Well, if you have your Bibles this morning, we're going to uh, go back. Yes, kids, head over to Bible Explorers and explore the Bible. Mom and Dad and me are going to do the same thing here. And uh, all in a hurry. And last week we started John chapter 10. And, you know, what a gold mine of material uh, that was to be able to study. I hope that, you know, many of you had time off this week and had things that you, uh, you know, didn't have to do normally. And I, I hope that you got a chance to get in and put a lot of it into your Bible and get a lot of that down. You know, Paul in Ephesians chapter 3, uh, verses 8 and 9, he talks about the unsearchable riches of Christ. And obviously he's talking about the, the Word of God. And, you know, last week we saw a glimpse of what, what that really means. Out of one little parable, one little story, uh, we have at least 20 or 30 ways to be able to study different aspects of what he's telling them into that story. And that's really the way the Bible is. The Bible is a supernatural book. Man has always tried to control the Word of God and the things of God to try to make them not supernatural, but make them in a, just a normal, natural sense. I... Uh, uh, yesterday was New Year's Day, and I don't know what you did, but I uh, luckily found out that uh, they were having a, uh, a binge fest on uh, Indiana Jones and uh, his movies. And all three of them were on, and I, I watched them, you know, and I, you know, I just kind of enjoyed it going back to watching all that stuff. But in the first one, at the end, you know, the first one's about the Ark of the Covenant. And uh, all of those, if you ever noted, are connected about something that has to do with the Bible. And, uh, you know, at the end of the movie there, I just stopped and thanked God that the Ark of the Covenant is not in a warehouse in Washington, D.C. someplace. Uh, it's up in heaven. You know, that's a great, nah, not really, but that's supposedly a great mystery in the Bible, what happened to the Ark. And, uh, you know, there's all kinds of things on it out there. Uh, I read one thing one time where the Ark uh, was buried underneath the ground right underneath where Christ was crucified and uh, that when he was crucified, the blood ran down the cross and went into the ground and seeped through the cave and then landed on the mercy seat. Well, that sounds great. Wouldn't that be wonderful if that was true? You see, the last time you find the ark is right before they go into the captivity and then you find it nowhere. So all these conspiracy theories about what happened to the ark. Well, I got news for you. The next time you find the ark, it's up in heaven. If you think God was going to relegate that piece of holy material that God gave Moses the directions for and what it represents to wind up in human hands, you don't know God very well. But that's what the world does. It always tries to take the supernatural things and take the super out of it, just make it a natural event. And of course, you know, we saw last week how that just, boy, is this Bible is something else, certainly the unsearchable riches of the Word of God. Out of one parallel, and we talked and we defined for you, if you do remember, we talked about the door, we talked about the sheep, we talked about the shepherd, we talked about the porter, and then we talked about the stranger that is mentioned in there. And each one of them is their own study, and that's just the beginning of it. I mean, there was so much. And along with that, 
we looked at a host of key words and Bible references that lay out, you know, completely the context of John chapter 10 in the first six verses. And it's places like this and our going after it that really will define what a real Bible student is. Uh, a real Bible student is someone who searches the Scriptures. You'll take what you get, and boy, you'll go home and not rest till that all gets put in a proper place in, in the Word of God that is your own Bible. And one of the great things about the Bible um, will be the fact that, that uh, uh, it's always doctrinally correct. We live in a world where political correctness is the, is the mainstream of the day. You've got to be careful what you say. You don't want to offend somebody. You don't want to say the wrong thing that would give the wrong impression because people are so easily offended today. And you want to be careful so in everything that you do, they have the term now political correctness. Well, I care nothing about political correctness. But what I do care about is doctrinal correctness. The Bible, the Word of God. And, uh, you know, in, in understanding that, you know that God never violates his own principles. This is one of the great keys to unlocking the Bible and finding things out will be its consistency. Uh, you know, a familiar verse that you probably all have memorized is found in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17, where it simply says that all Scripture is given by inspiration and it's profitable. And it says that it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. Now, if you look at that, you begin to see that the first thing that he listed, the first order of importance in the working order of these of things, and we've talked about this many, many times, is doctrine. Doctrine is absolutely crucial. It's doctrine first, and then it's reproof, and then it's correction, and then it's instructions in righteousness. And I've given you the little basic outline. You know, doctrine is truth. And then after you get the truth, the truth will reprove you. It'll show you what's wrong. Doctrine shows you what's right. Reproof shows you what's wrong. Correction shows you how to take the doctrine and fix what's wrong. And then instructions in righteousness shows you how to keep it fixed after you got it fixed. I mean, that's what it does. But it all starts with truth, with doctrine. And along with that, in Matthew chapter 13, uh, one of the parables again, and we got into that last week, you're going to find in verse 33, he says this, Another parable spake he unto them, The kingdom of heaven is like unto leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal, till the whole was leaven. Now that is a, that is a picture of the woman that we've seen, Roman Catholic Church, taking false doctrine, leaven, and mixing it in with truth, and in time, destroying everything that God has, uh, wants to accomplish. Inspirationally, it's a picture of the mixing of the leaven into Bible Christianity in 400 AD that brought about all the stuff that we have today and all of the disasters that we see uh, of false teaching and an unbelievable heresy that is that just goes through. And we talked about some of that last week, and we're going to talk about it again as we move into this and, and look at some things here. Now, leaven in the Bible, just so you know, leaven in the Bible will be bad doctrine. And uh, that will be added to truth that in time will completely destroy that truth. And you need to remember that. 
In Matthew chapter 16, verse 16, Jesus told everybody around him that they were to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Well, we've seen that in action as we come through this. In Galatians chapter 5, verse 9, Paul tells us that a little leaven will leaven the whole lump. And, you, you know, so it, it, notice he, he says just a little. Now, it's the job of the pastor in any church, and certainly the leadership of the church and the church in general, is to keep bad doctrine out of the church. Every church at some point will have somebody that comes in that brings in bad doctrine. You just can't, you can't stop it. It just happens. We get them here every once in a while. Some guy will come in with some off-the-wall stupid thing, you know, that, uh, uh, that is totally heresy and bad doctrine, and, and this church is like a brick wall. I mean, you may be able to go to a number of other churches and pass off your heresy. <laughs> it won't work here. You guys are too well-grained into uh, the Word of God. And like I said, uh, Galatians 5, 4 says it's a little leaven. Most people don't understand all that is behind our discipleship lessons. And, you know, um, to me, when I developed those a number of years ago, obviously I had the four goals which you all, you all teach and uh, we, tr- we accomplish when we go through those four goals. But the discipleship lessons were even more than that for me. Because in a church like this, in any church, you know, the discipleship lessons are something that when somebody gets saved or they come into the church and they want to be discipled, it's like coming back to America when you've lived in a foreign country for a couple of months and you visited everywhere. When you come back to the States, you've got to go through customs. And when you go through customs, there's a custom agent there that opens up your suitcase and he looks for all of the stuff that you got maybe have in there that you can't bring into the country. You can't bring some plants in. You can't bring some food in. You can't bring animals in. You can't bring uh, certain things you just can't bring in. And so before you can get into the country, somebody stops and opens up your luggage, your baggage, and sorts out what can come in and what can't come in. That's what discipleship does. It opens up your baggage, and it allows us to see exactly what uh, you're bringing in and helps us fix what should be brought into the church because you'll find people that, that in today, anyhow, that they, they don't have the right Bible. They believe you can lose your salvation. They believe this. They believe that. And our first stopgap is discipleship, and that's where you as customs agents go through and see and, and sort, out, sort out the heresy. You know, one of the things that's amazing about the Bible is how it always keeps that doctrine pure. And that's what you always want to remember no matter what you do. And Israel in the Old Testament, like we're looking at now in Matthew, uh, in John, uh, Israel in the Old Testament has a completely different set of doctrines than the church in the New Testament. And the Holy Spirit of God will always protect the right doctrine. And that is... I can't express to you how important it is to understand that. We saw this, if you remember, last week when we were talking about the parable in John 10, verses 1 through 6. And I showed you how that in that parable, it's all dealing with the nation of Israel. And when it comes up to after the first coming of Christ where he's crucified, 
it jumps right over the church age and then lands itself into the tribulation period. And I told you the reason for that is, is because the Bible is very clear in Romans chapter 16, verse 25 and 26, that the church was never revealed. The church was never revealed uh, before Paul shows up. So it would have been an inconsistency of doctrine and a breakdown of that consistency if he throws directly the church age uh, into anything in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It'll all be dealing with the nation of Israel. And once you understand that, uh, then you, you can eliminate a lot of bad things and just get focused on it. And, you know, and I know last week I used the example of the footprints in the sand, you know. And honestly, you know, it, it doesn't really, uh, you know, and people probably thought, well, what's, what's the big deal with that? Let me ask you something. As a Christian, right here today, and you're listening to me on uh, YouTube, you have to decide at some point in your life, you have to decide how much bad doctrine you're going to allow into your life. You're going to have to decide, are you going to allow 5%, 10%, 20%? How much are you going to allow come into your world or your family or your church, if you're a pastor, that isn't correct, doctrinally wise. Because as I've already showed you, it only takes a little leaven to leaven the whole lump. And, uh, you know, when, when you take that little thing that I talked about, the footprints in the sand, which is, it's, it's no big deal. But what it does, and what you need to understand, is that it destroys one of the seven mysteries, which is the mystery of Christ in you, the hope of glory. Because it gives the impression or takes away from the great doctrine that is in that mystery that the day you got saved, Christ comes and lives inside your body. That you become one with Him. There's no more separation. It isn't like you and God can walk along the beach. Like there's two sets of footprints in the sand, and then he, that, that, that is doctrinally incorrect. Now, what do you think? I'm just asking. Knowing the devil the way we all do, we know him pretty good, don't we? Knowing the devil the way we do, what do you think he'll do with that? You think he'll say, oh, that's no big deal. Those no, I tell you exactly what he'll do. He'll take that and mix it into truth. And then there will be people who will come along in life and they will actually believe that you're not part of his body. They won't understand that. And they'll actually think that you can walk down the beach hand in hand with him and then that there's a time where he might leave you. Are you kidding me? And of course, this is the danger of just a little leaven. And uh, in time, it leads to you to think that you're outside his body. You lose completely the doctrinal teaching of you in him and him in you. The mystery of godliness as the Bible lays it out. And of course, that's leaven. That's heresy. That's heresy. And this is why, I'm just telling you, you can test this for yourself. This is why. If you talk to the next 10 Christians and ask them what really happened the day they got saved, they won't be able to tell you because doctrinally it has broken down of what actually transpired inside your body the instant you trusted Christ as your own personal Savior. 
And for most of God's people, you're just walking along the seashore. And that ain't the way it works. But you see how important just a little bit of leaven comes in. I'll show you another example. And again, this is... This makes some people mad all the time too. It's that, it's that, I don't have my blackboard up here. It's that, it's that shine of the fish, you know, you all see. And uh, it's a thing where, you know, in, in what you're told is you're told in New Testament Christianity after the times of Jesus went back to heaven, when the Christians were being persecuted by Rome, they had to meet in secret. And so wherever they were meeting, somebody would put the sign of a fish. You know how it is, that just the sign of a fish. And that would be, that would be, everybody would know that that's where the Christians were meeting. Now, I got to tell you, that sounds cool. I, 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 I really think that that would have, been a, would have been a neat thing. But to see, the doctrinal side of it is this. Back in those days... If you wanted to find real Christianity, you didn't find him in a locked room with a fish on the door. You found him in the Colosseum. You found him up against the Roman gladiators. You found him being ripped apart by lions. You found them being burned in pitch around the racetrack at night so Nero could watch the, watch, the, watch the chariot races. But they didn't have stadium lights back then. So God's people, tied to poles, soaked in pitch, began the lights. That's where you found them. Now, which one sounds better? The first one. The idea that a bunch of Christians are running around looking for the fish sign. And, you know, the truth of the matter is, and this is the doctrine of it. Back in 1 Samuel chapter 5, verses 1 through 12, you had a, a false god by the name of Dagon. Dagon was a half-man, half-fish. And he was worshipped by the pagans back there, and that's where it all started. When Constantine brought Christianity and the Roman Empire together, his brand of it, not only last week did he bring in Christmas and Easter, but he brought in the sign of the fish, which is the sign of Dagon, the half-man, half-fish, back there in, in, uh, in 1 Samuel chapter 5, verses 1 uh, and 2. And you got saved people today, God's people, with those satanic emblems on their car, <laughs> on their Bible cases, and on their jewelry. I mean, and I don't care. I really don't. What do you think God thinks? I mean, it's clear that all that stuff came in. And with most of God's people, maybe it's no big deal. But I ask you, how much... Leaven, are you willing to let come into your life as a Christian? And whatever happened, as Paul said in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 10, whatever happened to sound doctrine? I'll tell you what happened. Leaven happened. And the devil came in through his bride and mixed leaven just a little bit into the truth of the Word of God. And this is what you got today. And my, 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 God's people are so fooled. They're so foolish in everything that they, they try to believe and hold on to. I mean, how do you read your Bible? Uh, and again, I'm just asking. You say you haven't got into the text yet. It's very small text. I need a lot of filler material here. Help me today. 
How do you read through your Bible and get past Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 15, 16, 17, 18, and 19? If you would, just turn to it for a moment. I'm talking about leaven now. I'm talking about what the devil did to Israel and then what he's doing to us. Look at verse 15 of Deuteronomy chapter 4. Take ye therefore good heed unto yourselves, for you saw no manner of similitude on the day that the Lord spake unto you in Horeb out of the midst of the fire. Lest ye corrupt yourself with a graven image, the similitude of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any beast that is on the earth, the likeness of any winged fowl that flieth in the air, the likeness of anything that creepeth on the ground. There's the guy you went out with last week. The likeness of anything creepeth on the ground and the likeness of any fish in the waters beneath the earth. Lest thou lift up thine eyes unto heaven and when thou seest the sun and the moon and the stars, even all the host of heaven should be driven to worship them and serve them which the Lord thy God hath divided unto all nations underneath the whole heaven. Now there is as good a piece of sound doctrine that you're ever going to get. It's just that simple. I mean, when it comes to God, whether it's in the Old Testament or the New Testament, he says... When I showed up to Moses, I didn't appear as any man, any woman, any animal form. And he says, it's the heathen that want to take God and make him into some kind of man, woman, image. And he says, you saw no likeness to know any male. I'm reminded of the old country western song. I don't care if it rains or freezes, as long as I got my plastic Jesus sitting on the dashboard of my car. I don't care if it's dark and scary, as long as I got magnetic Mary sitting on the dashboard of my car. You see, that's where it starts. Bubba and the boys ought to get that one down, Woody, and you can sing that one. That would be a good one. But anyway, he says, the likeness of no man or woman. He says, the likeness of any beast. Any wing fowl, there's your dove. The likeness of any, any uh, creepeth on the ground, and any fish, and then the stars. Oh, it, and I see this one all the time. For whatever reason, God's people are just bent on bringing the leaven of other gods into their life. I don't know how many times I see that. Six-pointed star David on somebody's necklace. And I, I was, we were in, in a foreign country sometime, I can't, when we had a pastor and his wife there, we were on a train someplace, and they were nice people, but, I mean, and she had this, she dressed very nice, very elegant lady, but she had this necklace on with the star of David on it. Now, I don't know if you know it or not, but the star of David is found in Acts chapter 7. It's the star of Rephidim, the false god. It never had anything to do with David. It never had anything to do with the Bible. It never had anything to do with the Old Testament. It was the nation of Israel going after the false god Rephidim and worshiping a six-pointed star that you all know and love as the star of David. And yet, it, you know, I, I, I said to her, I, I, you know, I, I just said, I, I, I really like your necklace. And she says, yes, my grandmother gave me that. And I said, well, I, no offense to your grandma, but you do know that is, a, that is the false god of Rephidim. And she got offended. <laughs> she didn't care what the Bible said. 
She didn't care what it represented and what it really was. She was, she needed, and this is where God's people were at, they need to believe that the idols that they have in their life are really of God. And she wouldn't talk to me the rest of the trip, which I didn't really care. But it's a thing where, this is where people are at. They will, God's people <coughs> who will be upset because you have, uh, you know, you have a, you have your little Christian necklace with all the devil's symbols on it, and you want to try to make it into God. And it's a thing where it's unbelievable how little God's people understand. And, you know, and I think, what God must think of that? I mean, really, if you're going to get down doctrinally, down to, back to the Bible, what, what's God think of that? And today, again, we're going to move on into this chapter, and after... He lays out this great story. Now he uses himself as the main ingredient to show Israel that he is their Messiah. Now that's another one. I, I saw a guy, I, I, I hear Christians all the time, and it's all this <coughs> new evangelical crowd, you know, and a lot of goofy Baptist preachers, that they get up there and they talk about, I heard it all during Christmas, how that Jesus was our Messiah. I'm going to tell you something, folks. Jesus was not your Messiah. The Messiah means the promised one and uh, the promised deliverer. I was at a Bible conference a number of years ago when a guy got up and he made this, and I had to preach after him, and he got up and he preached a whole sermon on Jesus, my Messiah, my promised deliverer. I had to preach that. I changed my message. And I got up afterwards, because I didn't care back then. I got up and afterwards says, I just hear, I just heard a great message on Jesus, the promised deliverer, the Messiah. I said, I don't know how to tell you this, but Jesus is not my Messiah. My promised deliverer is FedEx and UPS. <laughs> Jesus is not your promised Messiah. When you got saved, you got saved on the promises that he would save you on the spot. He's not coming to save you. He's coming to save Israel. But a little leaven, see, all it takes. We as God's people, it's no wonder Christianity is in a mess it's in. We are so far away from what the Bible really is and what it really means. It's unbelievable. Now, to fully understand this and what we're going into today, and I, I want to I wanna try to put this into a workable context for you. And uh, I want you to allow me for a moment to just take a, a quick moment and walk you back for a second through Hebrew history. I think that it's an, an incredible study that everybody needs to take if you're going to be a serious Bible student, I, I think it opens up everything for you of where we're at today. We already know that there's two kingdoms that we, we deal with in the Bible, the kingdom of heaven for the nation of Israel in the Old Testament and the kingdom of God. Which, And here again, you're taught everywhere, shape, or form that they are the same. And of course, we know that they're not. But God has a plan. God had a plan that he wanted to put into effect that was going to infect not only the planet Earth, but in time, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 and 7, the whole universe. God has his plan, and we know that the devil has his. 
Now, I don't know how many of you got this this week, but I, I, I get, get these, I got good people out there that send me all kinds of good stuff and give me all kinds of good stuff. But you know where we're living in right now in the world, and you know where the world is at. Do you now know, maybe you already know this, that the last couple of weeks, NASA hired 24 Roman Catholic Jesuit theologians. NASA. To help prepare people when we meet the alien races. Now, this is so stupid, you can't make this stuff up. Over in Arizona at Mount Graham, the Jesuits run a, an advanced technology telescope that is dedicated to finding life in outer space. Now, the name of that telescope is Lucifer. You can't make this stuff up. The problem is the world and most of God's people are so stupid, they don't even know who Lucifer is. It's run by the Jesuits. And the Jesuits are dedicated to finding life in outer space. Now NASA, with all of the UFO stuff that's coming, they've lied to us now for all these years. They actually believe there's life in outer space. It's getting closer and closer. Now NASA has hired 24 Jesuit theologians to help prepare mankind to meet the aliens. <coughs> and the last statement of this guy <coughs> is incredible. He says this. For, as for interterrestrial life, God by definition is all-powerful. He can create life wherever he wants. He doesn't need permission from human beings to do so. And it goes on to talk about that he is one of the 20, other 23 theologians that realize this. He says, those who would be troubled by the discovery of extraterrestrial life exhibit an exaggerated form of pride. Only humans can be saved by God's grace. Talk about pride. In his upcoming book, Davison quotes John uh, Pokerhorn, a theological uh, physicist, an Anglican priest. Well, that's a nice connection. If little green men on Mars need saving, then God will save little green men. That's where you're at today. You see, God has his plan. The devil has his plan. You know what the tragedy is? Not only the world, but most of God's people know more about God, the devil's plan than they do about God's plan. God's plan starts back all the way in Genesis. And he starts with two kingdoms that he's going to build everything on this planet around before he takes us out to do his job. And it won't involve aliens or little green men. In the Old Testament, we see the development of the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, we see the development of the church. And I've given you the five easy steps that break down the understanding of what God is doing, where he started it, how he's doing it, why he's doing it, and brings us right up to the first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. I've told you before, the first thing that you want to know about Hebrew history and God's plan back then, which is going to go out to eternity, is the formulation of the nation of Israel. This will be the book of Genesis. In Genesis chapter 11, after we see some things develop, God calls out Abraham. 
From Abraham comes Isaac. From Isaac comes Jacob. From Jacob comes the 12 tribes. Off you go. And at the end of Genesis, where do those 12 tribes go? This is all the hand of God. The end of Genesis, those 12 tribes go down to Egypt, type of the world. Then the second one that you have will be the calling out. That will be the book of Exodus. It will also include uh, 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 Exodus, Leviticus, uh, Deuteronomy, and Numbers. And this is where God brings them out of Egypt and then starts them on a journey to get to the promised land. I cannot tell you how important the promised land is, the nation of Israel with Jerusalem as the capital is to God's plan. That's why it's been the battleground all down through 6,000 years of man's history. Well, once Joshua gets on the scene, we go into the establishment. This will be Joshua up through First and Second Samuel and First and Second Chronicles where it deals with David and Solomon. And you see now that the nation is established. God's hand bringing all of this through, developing all of this, getting it right where it needs to be. Then we begin to see the devil do his work. We see the leaven begin to come in through Baal worship and all the other gods in the nations. We see the nation of Israel defying God and going after all the other false gods and we now see the demise. This takes place after Solomon and it takes place in the books of Kings and Chronicles after the death of Solomon and David. And then what happens? After Solomon's gone, the kingdom gets divided. Jeroboam takes the the, uh, half of it and, and Rehoboam takes the other half and it's divided. And now the nation of Israel is on its way down. And for the next 200, 300 years, She spirals into the history books right up to the captivity. The end of the kingdom of heaven. The devil did his work. The devil did his work to stop what God was going to do by just a little leaven. And by the way, when he says in Matthew chapter 13 verse 33 that in Galatians that a little leaven leaveth the whole lump, If you go through your Bible, you'll find over there that that lump is the nation of Israel. Romans chapter 9, verse 21. That lump is the nation of Israel. So now we see the captivity. Along about, uh, oh, I don't know, uh, 587, Assyria, Shennacherib comes down and takes the ten northern tribes. You'll find that in 2 Kings 17 and 2 Kings 18. And then in 2 Chronicles chapter 36, the one we're most familiar with, Nebuchadnezzar comes down, Babylon. He takes the way to two southern tribes. And we're most familiar with that because Daniel and Ezekiel go in that one. So we're more uh, in tune with that one than we are with the other one. And this captivity now goes on all down through the next, what, 300 years? And in the process of time, you can't miss this. We're all headed for what we're studying in John chapter 10. We're all heading now in this of the first coming of Christ. But now Israel, completely gone into captivity. The kingdom of heaven is gone. The door is shut. The nation of Israel has scattered, the devil has scattered them all over the world. Shennacherib brings some of them down into into Samaria and mixes the Jews with the Gentiles to wipe out and purge out the race, and they become the Sumerians that we know. So 
so much about in the New Testament. <coughs> but in a process of time, God's plan never gets, never gets stopped. In a process of time, both Babylon and Assyria, great nations that were used by the devil, they get destroyed. And nation of Persia comes on the scene around, oh, 536 B.C. And then when that happens, you have an amazing event. You talk about the hand of God injecting himself into history to get the plan done. When Persia comes on the th- in world power, Israel is still in captive. And Persia takes over all the empires, and many of the Jews are held under the Persian king, Ahasuerus. And then you find in the book of Esther, oh, what an amazing thing. Vashi was the Persian queen. Esther is a Jewish lady. Vashi defies Ohasuerus and gets kicked off the throne. And then Ohasuerus brings a Jewish queen to the throne, Esther. Most people read that and most people don't even see what that really represents. You know what that represents? That really represents the time that we're living right now. Vashti was a Gentile. She gets kicked off the throne and a Jewish queen comes on. That's a picture of the end of the times of the Gentiles and God beginning to bring back the nation of Israel. You know what Esther does? She gets a hold of King Ahasuerus. Now that's not his name, that is a title. She gets a hold of the king and she starts to plead her people's plight. You know what Ohasuerus did? You know, you know what he did? He, he allows the Jews, a remnant, to go back to Jerusalem. And he allows them to go back out of the captivity. Now, in your Bible, this will be the books of Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. In Ezra, they go back. In Nehemiah, they begin to rebuild And the amazing thing about that is that is the hand of God. A remnant out of what? 200 million Jews that have been scattered. If you go over to Esther chapter 7 verse 64, I believe it's the book of Esther. It may be be, uh, Nehemiah. 42,360 go back out of 200 million people. And Ezra and Nehemiah shows you how that they begin to try to put it all together. In Ezra, they go back, and in Nehemiah, they rebuild. Now, this is the hand of God in history. And when you try to separate history from the Bible, you lose all your perspective. The lessons of history of Israel and the church, because the Jew has to be in that land for the first coming of Christ. The nation of Israel has to be established. Even though it's under Roman captivity, the Jew has to be back in the land for the Messiah to show up. So God reaches down. He wipes out Assyria. He wipes out Babylon. They go into the dust of the history books. Persia comes on and Cyrus, king of Persia. A little later on, Ahasuerus, they get the decree After 70 years in captivity, a small remnant goes back. God moves, and the devil moves. So 400 there years or so before Christ shows up to fulfill the scriptures, God gets a remnant to go back to the land. And by the way, consistency. 
A group goes back to establish Jerusalem and Ezra and Nehemiah for the first coming of Christ. Yes, and in 1948, they go back the second time to get ready for the second coming of Christ. You don't beat the Bible. History. This is where we're at today. This is why you're seeing all that you're seeing going on uh, in this world today, preparing for what we know is coming, and the world just thinks it's going to be wonderful. Lessons of history. During this 400 years or so, when they're down there rebuilding that thing, the devil knows what's coming. He knows that the first coming of Christ is a couple of hundred years off. So what does he do? A little leaven. A little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. What does he do? Oh, or while 167, he creates a group called the Sadducees. About 135 years before Jesus shows up, he establishes a group called the Pharisees. And then already the scribes and the leaders of Israel have been corrupted, so now they line with the political side of things. And in our history timeline, which is found in Daniel chapter 2, you'll find that Assyria goes into the history books, Babylon goes into the history books, Persia comes on, but then she goes into the history books. The Greeks under Alexander the Great come on the scene. They go into the history books. And now, right before the first coming of Christ, the devil's favorite nation, his bride, his church, takes over world domination, the Roman Empire. And once Rome comes in, she never goes out. She just changes format, but she's still in power today, just like she was at the first coming of Christ. Sometime on a Thursday night, I don't have time to get into it today. Sometime on a Thursday night, ask me the question about the parallels between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. Unbelievable. And that will bring us up to where we're at now in John chapter 10 at the first coming of Christ. You see, all history in the Old Testament or the ancient history that you read about and hear about in school will be nothing more than the, the struggle of God and the devil fighting over that kingdom and the establishment of the kingdom. It's nothing more. The nations, the Gentile nations, oh, you go to school and you read about all the great, you know, the Egyptians and the Babylons and all these guys back here and all that stuff. And in Daniel chapter 2, you were told very clearly the order of those nations and why. Hey, the Gentile nations are nothing more than a little moped Things you see people riding around with downtown in Kansas City, those little scooters. That's all they are to get the devil where he wants to go. Nothing more about it than that. They don't figure at all in history. There's only one nation that figures in history, and that is the nation of Israel. So when Christ shows up in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, he now gives them, as we've seen, all the proof in the Old Testament that they can see who he really is. He fulfills 147 prophecies in the Old Testament that he is Israel's promised deliverer, the Messiah. And they reject him. They reject him in Matthew chapter 12. And in chapter 13, we see now it go into the parables. Now, here's the Bible references for the parables, and you'll want to get this down. First one, turn over to Matthew chapter 13. 
And this is where after they reject him in 12, this is what he says in verse 13. Therefore speak I to them in parables. Why? Because they seeing see not, and hearing they hear not, neither do they understand. And in them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah, which saith, By hearing ye shall hear, and shall not understand, and by seeing ye shall see, and not perceive. Now you see there's a difference between seeing and perceiving now. You see how that's in there? We ain't time for that either. But this people's heart is waxed gross, and their ears are dull of hearing, and their eyes have closed, lest at any time they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, and should understand with their heart, and should be converted, and I should heal them. Now, he, re- he, wrote, he, he referenced Isaiah. That's Isaiah chapter 6, verses 9 through 12, if you don't have it in your Bible. And he said, this is Isaiah, Go and tell this people, hear they indeed, but understand not, and indeed they perceive not. Make the heart of this people fat and make their ears heavy and shut their eyes, lest they see with their ears and hear with their ears um, and understand with their heart and convert and be healed. Then said I, how long? And he answered, until the cities be wasted without inhabitant and the houses without man and the land utterly stored. That's the second coming of Christ, by the way. And the Lord hath removed men far away and there be a great forsaking in the midst of the land. Paul, all the way at the end of the book of Acts, makes a reference to this exact same thing in Acts chapter 28, verses 25 through 28, where he says this. And when he agreed not among themselves, they departed. After that, Paul had spoken one word, uh, well spoken and and by the Holy Ghost, by Isaiah the prophet, unto the fathers, saying, Go unto this people and say, Hearing you shall hear, and you shall not understand, and seeing you shall see and not perceive. And the heart of this people is whacked gross, and the ears dull of hearing, and their eyes have closed, and they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and should be converted, and I should heal them. Be it known therefore unto you that the salvation of God is sent unto the Gentiles that will hear it. You see what he's saying? He's saying God's done with Israel for now, temporarily. And Paul puts the icing on the cake. We see now in chapter 12, they rejected him. Chapter 13, it goes into parables. We're looking at one of the great parables now in chapter 10. So we see this is the state of Israel at the first coming of Christ. The devil has done his work to destroy God's people by taking the word of God from them, the Lord Jesus Christ, John 1.1, adding leaven to it and completely destroying God's plan of the Old Testament temporarily to take the word of God to the world. Lessons from history. So we see this will be the issue at the second coming of Christ. The devil doing his work through Rome in both cases to destroy God's people, the church, at the second coming of Christ by taking the word of God from them and adding leaven into it. And God's people are just all for it. Doctrine. Doctrine purity. Doctrine The consistency that God never violates his own principles. Now, so with all that in hand, and that's a handful, let's read today our second installment on this story of John chapter 10, and we'll we'll put this together for you now, now that you have a complete picture of history and how it all works and how it all fits together and the, the, the consistency between the first coming and the second coming and how that God started the plan in the Old Testament, Israel rejected it, went to the Gentiles, and now we've rejected it. And in both cases, 
as in Nehemiah and Esther, as in 2021 and 22, all that God has to work with is a remnant. And I might say, and proud to say, that this church is part of that remnant. Now here's what he says. This parable spake Jesus, verse 6, uh, John 10, 6. This parable spake Jesus unto them, and they understood not what things they were which he spake to them. Then said Jesus unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, I am the door of the sheep. All that ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door by me. If any man enter in, he shall be saved, and he shall go in and out and find pasture. The thief cometh not, but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. I am come that they might have life, that they might have it more abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. He that is a hireling and not the shepherd, whose own uh, the sheep are not, seeth the wolf coming, and leaveth the sheep, and fleeth, and the wolf catcheth in them, and scattereth the sheep. But the hireling fleeth, because he is a hireling, and caring not for the sheep. Let's pray. Father, help us today to grasp this great passage and to put it into a context of everything you've given us up to this point. Help these people learn the Bible, learn the truth of the Word of God, and to stay doctrinally pure and correct in a world that cares nothing about it, in a world that is filled with leaven. Lord, let us to, like to the Old Testament, the bread that God baked and the priest baked was not allowed to have any leaven. Keep the leaven out of our book, our bread, the Word of God. And we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name for the sake we ask it. Amen. Now, verse 6 clearly tells us, as I've already stated, they didn't understand what he just told them. Uh, now we know why. We know why that the parables came in. We know why from Isaiah all the way up through uh, Matthew, all the way up to Paul making a reference to it. And now he explains to them how all this is about him as Israel's shepherd that has come to them. Verse 7 says, he tells them, I am the door of the sheep. Now, you remember verse 1 last week says that there is a door, a literal door, a real one uh, of the sheepfold. And that in verse 2, that it was Christ uh, as the shepherd entered into this world through that door. So that is a literal door. When Christ says, I am the door, he's not talking about the door, verse 1. He's talking about the fact that the Israel has to go through him. He's not the literal door. He himself came through that door. But if Israel wants to get through that door, they got to go through him. This is like John chapter 14, verse 6, where he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh to the Father but by me. In other words, he's telling Israel, you have to get to Christ. Uh, you have to get through Christ to get to God. And I'm Christ. So I'm not, oh, I'm the door to God, just like there is a literal door that you've got to take to get up to that, that uh, you have to go through that I came down through. And again, you have to keep in mind that directly, doctrinally, this has nothing to do with the church age. And of course, one of the great easiest ways to understand that is the fact that as all this stuff we're reading in John 10, the church is not even into effect yet. There is no church age. So you can't start taking things that he's saying before the church age and then pretend that you're in the church age. He's dealing with Israel here, as you'll see. Now let me show you. Look at closely at verse 8 and 9. Again, you'll see this as Israel. All that ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. 
By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved and shall go in and out and find pasture. Now again, that's the nation of Israel. You cannot put that into the church in any way, shape, or form. Now, obviously, the thieves and the robbers here will be the religious leaders of Israel, the scribes, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees. But look at verse 9. I am the door by me if any man enter in. Now, here it comes. The man, any man. I've told you I don't know how many times that every time you find the man or a man or a story about a man in the Gospels, it's always Israel. That's what you have here. First of all, it says, if any man shall enter in, he shall be saved. That's Romans chapter 11, verse 25 to 29, where all Israel shall be saved. And then he says, and where he knows is, where you know it's not the church, he says, then he goes in in verse 9, and then he goes out, and then he finds pasture. Can't be the church. That's Israel going into the tribulation, coming out of the tribulation, going into the millennium where he finds pasture. That has nothing to do with the church. You see, I understand there's a lot of things in the Old Testament and a lot of things that we read that we take a liberty with in an inspirational way. And I'm actually okay with that. But I think that one of the things that really shows you this here is come back to, come back to Psalms chapter 23 for a second. This is, this is the Psalms that, that everybody goes to. And I, I, have, I think it's a great Psalm. Uh, you ought to memorize it. You ought to take it and read it. it it's, it's a beautiful thing. Some of it you can put to you and some of it you can't. And uh, it's a thing where, uh, but it always amazed me that all the liberal guys who work their way to heaven and all the guys who think that, you know, you got to, uh, who are against the Bible and salvation, when, you know, whenever, whenever, whenever a disaster falls, they always read Psalms 23. I was watching a documentary over the last couple of days on the Titanic and uh, the aftermath of the Titanic and where they were recovering the bodies and doing everything. And uh, they actually uh, interviewed the, uh, the grandchildren or children of the survivors that got off of it or some of them that died on it. And one of them said that the, uh, they couldn't find all the band members, the little orchestra, and none of them survived. And it come to find out that, uh, that uh, when the ship started going down, they all got the... Uh, they all got together, and the last thing anybody heard them playing was, Nearer my God to thee. And of course, uh, it's a, it's a, you know, that's a, that was a very fitting thing to be playing at that particular point in time because they were all getting ready to meet him. And uh, somebody else said that uh, one of the, it was a Catholic priest, I guess, on there, and he had a bunch of people on the fantail back there as the ship was coming up there, and uh, he was reading Psalms 23. Wherever there's a disaster, people just want to read Psalm 23 because they think that's going to get you to heaven. And if I was on the Titanic, I wouldn't have been reading Psalm 23, and I sure wouldn't be my God, dear my God to thee. I'd have been on the fantail preaching that you better get saved because we're all going to die and meet God in about 30 seconds. And of course, uh, Psalm 23 is not going to do you any good. But this is where we always go. See, and it sounds so, oh, it sounds so wonderful. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. There's the pasture. There's the pasture. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. 
He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness. Now, listen, let me stop her for a minute. By the time you're reading this, if your soul's not already restored, you're in trouble. You're not going to get your resource soul by laying down by the pool and going down there by the still waters and finding a nice grassy place and munching on some grass. You're not going to find it there. You got your soul restored the day you trusted Jesus Christ as your own personal Savior. But there's somebody who goes into the tribulation, comes out of the tribulation, and then finds pasture. Here they are. Right here. Then he says, He restoreth my soul, he leadeth me in the paths of righteousness. Now, I'll stop there. How can you as a Christian be led in the paths of righteousness when you're saved? You already got God's righteousness. For you, it's not a matter you're going to be led in it. It's going to be a matter do you obey it or not. (laughs) He ain't going to lead you nowhere. If you're saved, you already got God's righteousness. But they don't. See how it fits? I'm okay. Somebody gets up and wants to make this a devotion. I'm okay for it. It's good. We're a good deal. He restoreth my soul and leadeth me to paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Ah, here's a good one. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me, thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Now, I like that one. And that's, that's okay. Because uh, I've said it many, many times that when you die, we don't ever taste death. We may walk through the shadow of death, but uh, we're never going to really see death because of Romans says what Paul says. But I got to tell you, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you better take about six months of your life, go back and get your concordance and study in the tribulation period, the shadow of death. The shadow of death is something in the tribulation period. I know inspirationally it can be, you know, you're going to die and you're kind of going to that before you go home to be with the Lord, you're in the, walking through the shadow. I get all that, and that's okay, that's good. But if you want the pure doctrine, you go back in the Old Testament and you find in the tribulation period there's a shadow that passes over that kills people that is called the shadow of death. It's the difference between playing with the Bible and knowing the Bible. Doctrine. Thou preparest the table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Well, I, I can apply that. I mean, uh, that just means that no, somebody doesn't like you and they're after you, that God will take care of you. But, doctrinally, that's the Jew in the tribulation period running into the wilderness and being fed by the manna from heaven, Exodus chapter 16, that God prepares for. Doctrine. Thou preparest the table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil, my cup runneth oil. O- over. You... You're, you're, you've already been anointed with oil. It got nothing to do with your head. The day you got saved, you got all the Holy Spirit of God there was. That's a little tough to put into the church age. But it's okay. Okay. Ah, here we go. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. <clears throat> Not true of you and me. I ain't dwelling in the house of the Lord forever. I'm going to reign with him through all of eternity. But somebody else is. What is that house? I will, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. The house of the Lord forever. The house of the Lord forever. The whole house of Israel. See how it works? Now, you can take an inspirational thing to that, and I'm fine with that. But my point in telling you all that is this. That's a millennial psalm. That's a psalm to the nation of Israel going through the tribulation. Now, we're going to go through tribulation, so there's some aspects of that that we can apply. But you see, you got to be careful, man. You got to be careful. 
And I, I can take things out of there and apply them to my own life as long as I understand what I can and when I can't. The problem is most of God's people have no doctrine in their life. They have no Bible basis in their life. So they're susceptible to the leaven that comes in. They're susceptible to what guys will tell them about the Bible, but they don't know how to figure it out for themselves. Now look at verse 10, back to John 10. The thief cometh not, but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. Now all this is a reference to the religious leaders. Not only back in the day, but our religious leaders today. Who the devil has taken and given the Israel as a false shepherd. And notice they do three things. First of all, to steal. They steal the kingdom of heaven away from the nation of Israel. To kill. Christ in particular, anybody else that gets in their way. To destroy. To destroy God's plan to reach the world through the nation of Israel and put it in NASA's hands when the aliens come down and we can all be buddy-buddy. You see, our lessons on Hebrew history that I gave you a few moments ago kind of put all this into context. And uh, it says here that, uh, that they came, and this is where it's at today, brother. This is the, if you think the devil missed out at the second coming, what he was doing at the first coming, he's got his own scribes, Pharisees, and Sadducees out there that want to steal everything from that Bible from you. They want to tell you that you can't know the Bible yourself. They want to take the truth from you. They want to add leaven to it. They want to bring in goofy, silly little stories that have nothing to do with the Bible to get you mesmerized in some kind of false spirituality instead of Bible truth. And you know what the tragedy is? God's people are okay with it. They'll steal from you that book. They'll steal from you the truth of that book. They'll steal from you the truth of that book and it'll kill you spiritually. And then it'll destroy whatever God has to do and wanted to do with your life. Some things never change, folks. And the only way you can sort it out and keep it clean is doctrine. Knowing the consistency that God never violates his principles and always operates in a consistency mode that it always repeats itself. Verse 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. And he does. And this is Christ dying on the cross. And I got to tell you this too. I feel like I'm destroying everything you ever knew about Christianity, but maybe it needs to be. The crucifixion, we always look at it as, you know, and I get it. It, You know, we look at it as that's where Christ died for my sin. No question about that. Praise God for it. Thank God, Bible. We sing all kinds of songs on a hill far away, the old rugged cross. Praise the Lord. The blood. I get all of that. But you need to understand that all that only comes in after Acts chapter 7. Now, in Bible Institute right now, for those of you that are gutsy enough to get in it, we're going through the book of Acts, and we're breaking that baby down where you can actually see how that thing works. It is probably the single key book in your New Testament that pulls it all together. Because we think about the crucifixion. I know I do. God died on a cross for me, and I preached on it a thousand times, the crucifixion, whatever it means to me. But none of that came into effect until after Acts chapter 7. Everything from Acts chapter 1 and Acts chapter 7 is about Israel. 
You couldn't find a Gentile in Acts chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, and 7 with a laser beam and a flashlight. They're not there. You got five messages preached by Peter, the apostle of the Jew. Remember last week he had the keys, the porter? <laughs> five messages that he preaches to Israel about getting that kingdom about. You see, what most people don't understand is that the nation of Israel has three chances to get the kingdom when Christ shows up the first time. Three chances. The first one was John the Baptist. What did they do with him? They killed him. Second one was the Lord Jesus Christ. What did they do to him? They killed him. But on the cross, Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Now, we like to spiritualize that and think that means us. And that's okay if you want to do that. But indoctrinally, it isn't you. It isn't me. It's the Jews that are crucifying because they know not what they're doing. Peter reinforces that in the first five messages that he preaches in Acts chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6. Stephen preaches the last one and he gets killed. He goes through that whole thing and God honors that request of his son and gives him one more chance. Israel. And that's why the church age, as far as the Gentiles are concerned, me and you, doesn't even get rolling until after Acts chapter 7 and Acts chapter 8. Guess what happens in Acts chapter 8? A revival breaks out down in Samaria. Guess what happens in Acts chapter 9? The greatest apostle to the Gentiles gets saved, Paul. Guess what happens in Acts chapter 10? Your first Gentile gets saved. What happens in Acts chapter 11? They're first called Christians at Antioch. What happens in chapter 12, 13, 14, 15, 16? The missionary trip to the Gentiles. But not till after Acts chapter 7. Doctrine. How much error are you allowing in your life or will you allow in your life? For me, zero. And I'm sure I have some, but I will keep it to a minimum. You know why? Because I know a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. And I know at the first coming of Christ, the Hebrew history tells me God's plan was to bring about a a salvation to a group of people that was going to take it to the Gentile world, and the devil stopped it with leaven. And then I know that in the New Testament, when Israel failed, he's going to bring the church his own body, and he's going to give them the message to take to the world for the second coming of Christ, and the devil through leaven stopped it. Verse 12 and 13. But he that is a hireling and not the shepherd whose own be sheep or not, seeth the wolf coming and leaveth the sheep and fleeth. And the wolf catcheth them and scattereth the sheep. The hirelings fleeth because he is a hireling and carrying nothing for the sheep. Now that's, that's two great telling verses. Now here's where we're going to get not only the history and the doctrine, we're going to get a little inspirational here. Now this here is the scribes, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees. They're called hirelings. Now a hireling will be somebody that has been hired to do a particular job. Or he has a particular job, but he doesn't really care about the job. All he cares about is the money he's going to get from it, the power he's going to get from it, or the status he's going to get from it. I.e., most politicians will tell you when they're running for election that they'll work for you. 
until they get in office and then they work for themselves. Now he says down first in verse 12 here, uh, leaveth the sheep and fleeth, the wolf catcheth them and scattereth the sheep. I don't want you to miss that one. If you don't have that in your Bible, put down there, that's 70 A.D. That's 70 A.D. in history when Titus comes down and destroys Jerusalem and he scatters the sheep. When they see the wolf coming, they do nothing because they really don't care about the people. They only care about their income. They only care about their own status, their own power. And of course, you see that clearly when Titus came down in 70 AD. And boy, I cannot tell you the devastation that he did when he came into Jerusalem. Unbelievable. The devil took his revenge one more time on that nation and has been doing it ever since. You see, one will love the sheep and protect them from the leaven, the bad doctrine, and actually give his life for them. That's Christ. The other will not care and allow all kinds of bad leaven to come into their life. And like the brethren in John chapter 10, they steal from God's people your millennial inheritance. And that's what's going on today. And I, I know I, you know, I have people get upset when I talk the way I talk. I don't care. Honestly, I don't care if you lose your millennial award. That is your choice. You have to look at life, the Bible, and everything that you're involved in, the church you go to, the pastor you listen to, and you have to decide for yourself, how much error am I going to allow him to give me? And then how much am I going to take into my own life? Now, here it comes. <laughs> allow me to add a personal note here. As a pastor, uh, I, I can't speak about mechanics. I can't speak about telephone operators. I can't speak about uh, uh, plumbers. I can't speak about carpenters. I can't speak about, uh, I don't know anything about that. So I can't criticize them. And, uh, you know, but I, I do know preachers and I do know pastors. And I know a little bit about the Bible. This is what you get today, whether you like it or not. This is what you get today with 99% of the pastors out there the big-time guys, the megachurch guys, the neo-evangelical and a lot of Baptist guys, they hear nothing for the people. You're just a giving record. You're just somebody that they want to pack the place on Sunday. I, I had to laugh. It's probably last year. And I used to, when I was getting ready, I got to be at church earlier now, but when I used to get have to leave a little later at the old place, um, you know, I used to catch the first 15, 20 minutes of Joe Olstein, and uh, I just would do it for the joke. Sometimes they were good, sometimes they were bad. But I remember one time he had a, he, he, he was given a, a, a guy had died in his church, and he was preaching on service. And he brought up this guy's name, and he said how that for 30 years, this man had been faithful at welcoming him visitors to his dad's church and his church. For 30 years, this man was faithful in his service for God. And then I just stopped right there. You know, the next thing he said, I have never met that man. But brother, he did a good job. What? The guy was faithful for 30 years. I guarantee you, some of your other hirelings had to tell you what his name was. I'll tell you something else. I bet you didn't preach the funeral. I'll tell you something else. I bet you didn't even know he died until somebody told you. See what it is? They don't care about you. 
All they want is your money. They've got this big Taj Mahal that they built that there's their millennial temple and they got to have you to pay for it. That's why you'll get in any sermon, you'll get a halftime show, the Super Bowl, and you'll get about a 15-minute message and then uh, the rest of it will be about, we need to give you more money. I said that wrong. (laughs) They're not going to give you any money. We need you to give me more money. Senior moment. I'm okay. They're locked away in a little office suite, guarded from all the common folks by a secretary or a staff member or a personal assistant to the pastor. Now, I must confess to you, I have a personal assistant as a pastor. It's the Holy Spirit of God. He's the only one I need. And of course, these guys can't get along with that. They have to elevate themselves. First of all, they live in houses that their ordinary people in their church could never live in. They drive cars that the ordinary people could never drive. They have an income that the average people can never have an income like. They do. They live so far above their people that they lose touch with them because they're a hireling. They're held up in esteem because they're some great Bible teacher. If you took all the Bible they knew and put it up against somebody who knew the Bible, they couldn't fill the left eye of a blind mosquito. But yet, there they are. See? The church, the pastor. And it's all paid for by good people who have, don't know the Bible, have the Bible stolen from them, have the millennial inheritance <coughs> stolen from them, and are given a lump of leaven to destroy any truth that God could give them and then they, 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 they buy into it and they think that they're actually doing what God wanted them to do by paying for some millennial temple that uh, is going to do nothing but destroy theirs when they get to the second coming. And uh, they don't even know that their people are alive or care what they're going through. Now, I'm not going to get into this, but a great example of this would, in the Bible would be Saul back in 1 Kings 12 and 13. He'd be a great example of this, but if you study it all. Now, I'm almost done. And this little inspirational tirade I'm on right now, since I'm already here, let me give you five things that you want to look for if you're in a church like this. And then my advice to you, if you hit three out of the five, you need to get out. If you had five out of five, you need to steal something on the way out. (laughs) They are stealing from you your millennial inheritance. They will kill you spiritually, just like the scribes and the Pharisees, and will destroy you in time from ever accomplishing what God really saved you for. Now, these are goofy, but I'm goofy. These are five little things here that are goofy things. If I was speaking before the world assembled congregation of preachers, I would never use this. I'd find something really big and, and with volume to it, you know. But I'm talking to you guys. And this is it. This is simple. It's basic. It doesn't take a lot of Bible. It doesn't take any Bible to understand this. If you find in your church, if you're listening to me this morning, if you find in your church the pastor does any one of these five things, get out. And I don't care, but I'm telling you, you're losing everything God had for you. What is the first one? I'm almost embarrassed to say this. 
If you can't get his personal cell phone number, you say, Bob, that sounds so stupid. Try to get it. Go up to your pastor as he's walking down the shag carpets with his $600 suit on his way out to his Mercedes Benz and say, Pastor so-and-so, could I have your cell phone number? I'd like to call you this week. See how far you get. See how far you get. You say, that sounds so stupid. Try it. Try it before you call it stupid. Try it. And you'll see how incredibly wise it is. Just get his personal cell phone number. Or if he doesn't have a cell phone, get his home number. Second thing you want to look for, can you stop him in the hallway and say, Pastor, I really need to talk to you for a moment. Now, if he's off in the hallway, he's going someplace. And I can guarantee you wherever he's going is more important than what your question is going to be. And I'll tell you right now what he'll say. Call tomorrow and we'll get you hooked up with, with, with Pastor so-and-so. He don't have time for you. Look, if you got a problem, you catch me in the hallway, I'll put the service off 20 minutes if I've got to deal with something you're going through. You know why? Because at that point in time, you're the most important person in my world. If you don't have that, what do you have? I'll tell you the third one. You can't call him on his phone and say, Pastor, this is so-and-so, and and, uh, how are you today? I'm fine. I'd like to get an appointment with you next week. My wife and I are just having some problems, or we're having some problems with our kids, or, you know, I just got an issue I want to talk about. You know what? You won't be able to do that, because you'll say, call my secretary. And he won't even say that because you won't have his phone number in the first place. You'll call the church and you'll say to the church, I'd like to schedule an appointment with pastor so-and-so. They will automatically change you over to his secretary, Martin Borman. How many know who Martin Borman was? See, everybody thinks that Adolf Hitler was the powerhouse in Germany. He wasn't. You know who the most powerful man in Germany was? His secretary, Martin Bormann. Because Martin Bormann got to decide who got to see him and who didn't. That's power. He got to say, yes, you can, or no, you can't. That's power. He, had the, he could limit the access to whoever you wanted to see. And that's what the secretary does. If she doesn't think, and I'll guarantee you. No, I'm never going to say it. I guarantee you. If she doesn't like you, you'll never get in. If she doesn't think your problem is worthy, she'll probably ask you to explain it to her, and then she'll decide for you if you're good enough, to get, if your problem's legitimate enough. Is that what you want? Aren't you glad when you pray to the Lord Jesus that it doesn't stop and the porter up there examines your prayer before it goes through? And I'll tell you something else. If you do have a problem, this is the next one. If you do have a problem, don't let him pass you off to some second stringer. If he's the main guy, he's the one that you want to talk to first. Now, he may give you to somebody else to help you, but he has to be the one first to decide that. 
Walking down the hallway and you say, Pastor, I got a problem. I need a, hey, yeah, call, call, call brother so-and-so. He handles all of that. We got a psychiatrist and a psychologist therapist on staff. Call him. No, I want to talk to you. You're the main man. You and God walk along the beach together. And most important to me, anyhow, Ask him if he'll sit down with you one-on-one and teach you the Bible. Just ask him. Or, or, or better yet, just say, can I call you next week? I have a Bible question. Just ask him. Or I really want to learn the Bible, Pastor. And boy, you're a great preacher. And I know you really know the Bible. Would you spend an hour together with me this week showing me how to put the Bible together? Try it. Don't take my word for it. And if any one of those, and I haven't got to the best one yet that would just have you get out anyhow. If any one of those, and you probably hit five for five in most churches today, out. He's stealing from you your millennial inheritance. And the most important one, as far as I'm concerned, if he's not teaching you out of the King James 6 11 authorized version, what is the point? How much leaven, how much error, will you allow in your life? How much will you put up with of some guy teaching you incorrectly when it comes to the Bible? And I know nobody's 100% perfect. I'm not 100% perfect. But come on, man. It's one of those things. You're in the wrong place. Now, finally, verse 13. And we'll end today with this. The hireling fleeth because he is a hireling. And careth nothing for the sheep. There it is. Some things never change. And as I've said over and over again, what with the leadership of Israel at the first coming of Christ is the same mindset of the leadership of the church at the second coming of Christ. And they both got there 2,000 years apart by the same road. Leaven. A little leaven leaveth the whole lump and they destroy They steal. They kill everything spiritually in your life. Now, this chapter is a great one, and it leads to so many other areas in your Bible which you have seen today and have you seen last week. Now, get these things into your Bible. Get these key places lined up in your Bible. Don't wait. Don't say, I'm going to do it later. You'll never get it done. Because next week we're going to get into the third lesson and, uh, on this great story. And we're going to then tie it all together and see how it comes. But you got a gold mine today of how it all goes back to the Old Testament and how that the devil sowed leaven in the lump. And the lump is the nation of Israel. And then it destroyed everything else as get into Christianity. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus. We love you. Thank you for all you do for us. Thank you, Father, for the truth of the Word of God. Thank you for the consistency of this book. Thank you for a book, Lord, that we don't need anybody. We may need somebody to help us just understand the basics of it, but once we get those things down, get out of the way. That's all we need. My own personal assistant is the Holy Spirit of God that leads and guides us into all truth. Thank you, Father, for this book. Thank you for these dear people who love this book. And thank you, Father, for making it real to us. 
And thank you for all that you've given us last year and how we look forward to this next year. But most of all, Father, take care of our folks that are sick. Watch over them, help them, heal them, bring them back, and that we can continue to do the work in this next year for you. And we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. For our sake we ask it. Amen. God bless you. You're dismissed. Be careful going home. And I'll see you Thursday.